Let me just read a couple of verses that come from there so you're reminded of what, what's happening here. Um, this is when the Israelites were camped below the mountain. and says this in, at the end of verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. This is the word of our Lord. Ann Landers, you recognize that name. Ann Landers was an old columnist from back in the 50s and 60s who would receive numerous letters from people who were struggling with different problems in their life. Um, at one point, she was receiving around 10,000 letters a month. And she said that what predominated through all these letters as there were problems, people were sending their problems into her so that she could answer them and help them with, help, uh, help them with those problems. She said the one problem that predominated through all of them was People were afraid of losing their loved ones. They were afraid of losing their health, their wealth. They were, people were afraid of life itself. Now, when you do a Google search on fear, the one thing that comes up is all these different lists of what people are afraid of, phobias, really. Uh, the number one phobia in America, you know what it is to say? Ophidiophobia, the fear of snakes. After that comes, comes this. Um, Creepy crawly bugs, number two. Scary spaces like elevators, bridges, sporting events. Um, speaking in public, heights, the dark, thunder and lightning, uh, fear of flying, dogs, or the dentist. Maybe from some of you might be thinking, yeah, some of those things really do frighten me, right? As I looked at some other lists, there's another one that had a little bit different focus to it. I um, mean, it said this, the number one, Fear that people have is failure. The next one is fear of death, fear of rejection, ridicule, fear of loneliness, fear of misery, disappointment, and a fear of pain. Now, there's no shortage of lists on people's fears. You just do a quick Google search, you'll find many, many things that you'll see people are afraid of, people have a fear of in this world. But one thing that I noticed as I looked through a number of different lists that you will not find is, or at least I did not find, is a fear of God. You'll find a fear of death, but not necessarily and specifically a fear of God. And I suppose that makes sense, right? Creepy crawly things, snakes, the dark, those are things that we can, you know, they're immediately in front of us, things that we can sense, we can grasp, understand a little better. But having a fear of God, that takes a little bit more thought. People, by nature, it seems, don't have that fear, being afraid of God. And that was definitely the case with the Israelites in our lesson, which is unusual because of what they had just seen. In the chapters leading up to where we are at right now, they had seen the ten plagues of Egypt. They saw the devastation that God was able to do when he was angry. They saw the, uh, the Red Sea open up, and it swallowed the entire Egyptian army. They saw that. So if anyone should have had a fear of God, it seems that the Israelites should have had a fear of God. Now let's understand what I mean by, by fear. There's two real ways to look at that word fear. 
One is to be afraid of something, right? To actually be afraid of God. And, and we can understand that when we think about God's holiness in comparison with our sinfulness, there's a definite reason to be afraid of God in that sense. But another aspect of fear is looking at a, an awe and respect for God. And the Israelites didn't seem to have either aspect of a fear of God. You see, it took three days, just three days from after they were brought out of the Red Sea and saved before they started complaining again in the desert. Complaining because of a lack of food, a lack of water, because of some enemies that they thought were going to attack them. And they went to Moses and said, Moses, why did you bring us out here in the desert to die? We had everything we needed back in Egypt. Sure, we were slaves, but at least we had food, we had water, we had a life. And it was at that point when God said, okay, we need to talk. And so he goes to Mount Sinai and has a little sit-down chat with the Israelites. He says, this can't go on forever. So what he does is he gives them the law, the law of God. Now, the law of God is not just the Ten Commandments. The law of God is all of the regulations, the, the sacrificial regulations, the eating regulations, the festival regulations, the Sabbath laws, all those different things God gave to those people in that day. And now let's, let's talk about the purposes of the law. The, the number one purpose of the law was it worked as a curb, just as a curb out in the street keeps the cars on the right path and goes in the right direction. So also God used the law as a curb to keep the Israelites on the right path in the right direction. God's plan was to use the Israelites as a vessel through which the Savior would be born. So that nation had to remain intact until that time would come. Another purpose of the law was to serve as a mirror. When they saw the law of God, they got to see themselves and realize that they were not living exactly to what God's law had said. And that caused inside of them a, a fear of God. They got to see what God actually demanded of them, where God wanted them to go, and they realized that in front of a holy God, they were in trouble. The people did not have a fear of God, and so God had to have a little sit-down chat with them to talk about what was going on. In the chapters leading up to this, we see that when they first got to Mount Sinai, there was thunder and lightning. There was the glory of the Lord that looked like a, a consuming fire. And God did this not to frighten them and bully them into obeying his laws. Rather, he did it because he wanted them to understand the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of temptation, because they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Do we fear God? Not so much are you afraid of God, but do you have an awe and respect for the Lord? And I, I think that's a difficult question to answer, but, but I think it helps us answer that question when we think about the simple fact that since we sin daily, I think our fear, that is a, a respect and awe for the Lord, is sometimes lacking, isn't it? That we just like the Israelites live a life that is comparable to them who were complaining 
and frustrated and worried and didn't look at sin and temptation as that big of a deal. You know, the Bible talks about God's love very often, but it also talks about God's holiness, God's wrath, and God's anger very often as well. And one passage that comes to mind is James chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Think about what that verse means. God's standards are so high that if you are able to live a completely perfect life, but but mess up just one time, you're guilty of breaking all of it. One of our teens told me this last week that they were studying for the SAT, getting ready for that very important exam. And do you imagine if you go into the SAT and you get every answer right except for one and end up getting a zero? But you see, God doesn't grade on a curve. God isn't comparing you with other people. God is comparing you with a holy and sinless God. That's reason enough to be afraid. Jesus himself talks about being afraid of God. He says this, um, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There are other warnings in the Bible. In, in 1 Corinthians, it says, If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. See, not having a fear of God causes us to put our guard down. And I could give you a number of different examples of, of people who seem like good people who committed adultery, committed murder, or attempted suicide. And yet we have to think about that, that the lust that came before committed adultery, the hatred that came before committing murder, and the not trusting in God's promises that came before attempted suicide are sins that we commit as well, sometimes on a daily basis. And they're just as condemning as the actual act. See, Satan is patient. He is ever so patient. And like a sniper, he waits for the perfect opportunity for our fear of God to to let our guard down, where we look at sin and treat it as if it's not that big of a deal. And finally, he waits for that moment when we shrug our shoulders to that which can condemn us. Now, I'm not trying to cause you to have an extra phobia of any, in any way. But I do want you to understand God's incredible holiness in comparison to our sinfulness. I want you to understand the seriousness of sin. And while today we've been talking about the importance of having a fear of God, the rest of our lesson talks about the reason why we don't have to fear God at all. See, what, what happens just the very verse before this lesson is we see God invited the 70 elders of the Israelites to be with him, to eat with him. It says this in Exodus 24, verse 11, verse just before our lesson. It says, but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. If God wanted them to be afraid of him, he wouldn't have drawn closer to them. But you see, God wanted them to know that despite their sinfulness, he loved them. That despite their sinfulness, he wanted to draw closer 
two of them. See, there's one more purpose of the law that we did not talk about. We talked about the curb, we talked about the mirror, but the other purpose for which God gave the law to those Israelites was to serve as foreshadowing the coming of the Savior. All the different Sabbath regulations and festival regulations that they had would point those Israelites toward the one who actually would remove their sins, would point them ahead towards the Savior. It would point them ahead to the one who would give them absolutely no reason to fear God. Let me, let me explain a little bit as it comes from this lesson. What we see in this lesson is unique, that we see the glory of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord is something you don't see very often in Scripture. The glory of the Lord is, is typically something, when you see it, it always expresses something extraordinary and momentous is about to happen that has to do with God's plan of salvation. And so here on, the mount, on this mount, Mount Sinai, God gives, God shows the people the glory of the Lord, and it shows that something extraordinary, something momentous, something that has to do with God's plan of salvation is about to happen. He gives them the law. It shows them their sin, but also points them ahead to their Savior. Later on, we see the glory of the Lord when Jesus is born. Remember the glory of the Lord shown all around them, and the shepherds were terrified, right? Something extraordinary momentous and having to do with God's plan of salvation. And then later on we see it at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was about to head toward Jerusalem and go to the cross. Something extraordinary, momentous, and having to do with God's plan of salvation. And when he made his way to that cross, he gave us absolutely no reason to be afraid of God. You see, God is angry towards sin. And so all this anger that's been built up from all the sins that were committed at the very beginning, starting with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, to the very end of the world as God looks ahead towards all of these sins. It reminds me of you know, the cartoons where you see a guy with a bright red face who's just angry and there's smoke coming out of his nose and out of his ears, right? He's about to explode. That's what God was like. And yet he poured out his wrath. He burst in anger towards his son on the cross. It's like a, a bottle of soda that somebody shook up. And that anger exploded on his son. And so you see, what, what drives us to follow God's laws is not a fear of God's anger. It's rather an awe and respect towards the incredible amount of love that God has for us. Think about God's love for us. He loved those Israelites so much that he decided that even after they complained, there he was going to eat and sit with those 70 elders of Israel. He knew that those Israelites would continue to mess up in the future, but he still decided to make them his people, through which the Savior would be born. And as he looked in the future to you and me, he knew that even though we were going to be his children, we, didn't, we don't always act like it. But he still went to the cross for us. But the greatest display of God's love by far is where we see his son on the cross, who was the object of God's wrath because of our sins. In parenting, we use the law to teach our kids at an early age what is right and what is wrong. And our hope is that eventually our children 
will do what's right and wrong, not because we are forcing them to, but because they want to out of love for us. That's, that's Jesus' whole point, too. That's God's whole point for us. That we follow God's law not out of fear of who he is, but out of having an awe and respect for the incredible amount of love that he showed for us. See, Satan is going to continue to tempt us. And like test tasting all the different flavors in Baskin Robbins, Satan tries all the different flavors, all the different temptations, until there's one sweet enough that entices you to fall. But let me remind you, first of all, that even before you commit that sin, it's forgiven. There's no more fizz left in that bottle of soda, right? There's no more anger left in God. So we know that God is not going to get us back for the sins that we commit. Karma does not exist. Yet we do have a fear of God, an understanding, an awe and respect of God because we understand what he did for us. And see, what God has given us now is the ability and the desire to do what is right, to follow his laws. See, the glory of the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration is not the last place where it's found. Paul, in his epistle to the Corinthians, talks about it one more time. He talks about how the glory of the Lord is in us. He says this, he says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Remember what the glory of the Lord means? An extraordinary, momentous act that shows God's plan of salvation for the world. On the day you were baptized, that glory of the Lord came into your heart, in a sense. And you were saved. And that is what gives us the desire to do what is right. And that gives us, no, that gives us every reason to never be afraid of God and really every reason never be afraid of anything again. Amen.